0: Thank you, Deirdre. Good evening, everybody. Glad you're with us here today. Uh, and it, it really is an incredible story out of out of Mark five here. If you've never heard this story before, it's also in Matthew. In Matthew's telling, there are two men that are driven into the tombs and who approach Jesus in this way. And in Mark, it's it's one man, but it's really the longest narrative of a healing in the Gospels, which is really startling coming in Mark, because Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. So the fact that Mark would want to go to this great of detail and length to tell us the story of this man and his encounter to Jesus is really telling us something. That Mark has a really clear and interesting intention with this for us. And this story takes place in the middle of three stories. I think George has talked about this quite a bit, you know, as he's been going through these these triads of stories that the gospel authors like to do. And this is the middle of three. The one right before here at the end of chapter four, this was when they were crossing the Sea of Galilee together and the great storm came up and they feared for their life and Jesus calmed the storm, had authority over the storm and the storm ceased. Then they get across... And then you run into this this demon-possessed man where Jesus exercises his authority over the demon. And then the second half of Mark 5 is when we meet the, the woman with the bleeding and Jairus and his daughter who has died. And Jesus heals and raises to life his daughter. So it's these three stories, and they all deal then with Jesus's power and authority. And in this one, it's really this power and authority over the demonic, over evil. And we really have to kind of pause right right on the front end here, and just kind of talk about the elephant in the room when it comes to, I mean, demons. I mean, demons and evil. A, a story like this is pretty, pretty weird and makes us a little uncomfortable, especially as modern readers. When we come across things where there is a demon and having a conversation with Jesus, or Jesus is driving out demon-possessed people, As Westerners, as modern Americans, right, we really kind of bristle and are fairly quick to dismiss these types of stories or fairly quick to even just dismiss tales of these kinds or really anything that's demonic or spiritual in nature or evil forces in nature. That's something, if you're anything like me, right, it just creates a bit of an uneasiness. And we're quick to kind of write these stories off, especially in the gospel authors. You can kind of say, and you hear this often, this, look, we've advanced so much as a people, they said demon-possessed, this man was possessed by a demon, but really that means he was sick. That just means he had a mental illness, that just means he had a physical ailment, that just mean, that meant a lot of things, and that these authors just didn't have the vocabulary, they didn't have the knowledge, they didn't know what to say, so they would just say, this man is possessed by a demon. And that solution or that kind of position makes sense to us. But it doesn't make sense if we actually look at the context and we look at what people believed and knew in the first century. I mean, the Roman world was incredibly knowledgeable and that knew a lot about science, about medicine, about the mind, and about spirituality. And it it doesn't hold true for the gospel authors because we see it throughout the gospels. We see people with medical ailments, and they don't say that they were demon-possessed, We see people with psychological ailments and they don't say they're demon-possessed. And then we have instances where the gospel authors want to tell you that someone was demon-possessed. So it it doesn't seem that the authors don't have a choice or that they don't know any better and that they're just kind of lumping everything into the demonic. So really, what that does to us is it it forces us as a reader, now at least, to really evaluate our own worldview today against the biblical worldview— Against the worldview held by the author and held by the original readers and then the one held by us, and really, which one makes more sense? Does it make more sense to believe in a world where there are evil spirits at work, or does it make more sense to believe in a world where there are no evil spirits, where everything is materialistic or naturalistic? Does that make more sense? And I would argue that the Bible offers a more real and complex worldview that actually answers a lot of the problems of our life and experience, that just rings more true, that's far more reasonable than the simplistic cultural worldview that our culture says is true today for understanding our problems. Because the, Bible, the Bible's worldview, or the picture of the problems of the world, according to the scripture, is far more complex and deep, more nuanced, more holistic than what we tend to do as a culture. What we tend to do now, as moderns, is we'd like to really kind of group things into one or two categories of why things are the way that they are. Or what's wrong with us, what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with everything. And we like to find kind of clear camps, and so then clear solutions, right? One of those is we look at the world and we say, the problems, everything's materialistic. It's just natural, material. In the sense of like, why is there so much what we would call evil in the world? It's just lack of resources. It's just a lack of something. If, if they could just have this, if you, if there's, a, there's a material need here. And if you can just fill people's material needs or meet their needs, then the evil will stop. These things will stop. These problems go away from a very materialistic kind of perspective. Like, what's wrong with this man? Well, he must just have a chemical imbalance. If they can just fix that, he would be fine. Right? Like There must be a natural reason for what's going on in this story. The other way in which our culture likes to look at things, not just from a materialistic lens, but from a psychological lens, right, just said, look, well, okay, it's not, right, it's also there's something just wrong with his mind. Like, most of our problems, all of our problems are really just in our mind. If we can just renew our minds, get our thinking right, you know, get to the root of our causes, get to the root of the problems, we can kind of unwrap them, unfold them, and find the truth and find kind of liberation or freedom through psychology, through... Therapy, through counseling, you know, we, we have that vision. So you look at the story of this man, you say, This guy just, he really needs some counseling. He needs someone to talk to him, you know, to ask him some questions. You know, his problems primarily are in the mind. Uh, the third kind of category of, of problems that historically we like to kind of lump everything into are moral problems, right? This would be the very kind of traditional religious approach to the problems of life in the world. You know, why is there so much evil? Why is there so much bad? Why is so many things out of whack? It's a well. People are just making really bad choices, and we're suffering the consequences of immoral behaviors and decisions. You know, if this, why is this man in the stage he is in his life? He's, well, he probably made some really bad choices along the way, and he find himself there. If you want to have a different consequence, if you want to be in a different situation, you need to change your decisions. You need to change your behaviors, and then you'll have a different outcome. You'll have a different life. Very kind of moralistic, right and wrong types of worldviews. And the Bible, and what's so great about the Gospels and this biblical worldview, is it doesn't discount all of these. It doesn't just dismiss them and say, no, 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 none of these are true, right? No, it encapsulates all of these, because you see Jesus addressing all of these needs and problems in his life and in his ministries, right? He deals with the material world and material needs. He deals with the psychological needs of people. He asks those questions and tells the truth and helps us to realize the truth of things. And he deals with the morality of life as well. And he tells sinners to sin no more, right? He calls out behavior as well. But what the biblical worldview does is it adds to this perspective, this spiritual layer that really helps to give a a greater depth and meaning to this world. That beyond just the immediate physical and psychological observable needs that we see, the problems that we see, easily can see all around us, Beyond all of this, what the Bible tells us is that there are real spiritual forces at work in this world that are actually looking to undermine us, that are actually looking to cause division and fear and work out death in our lives and in our culture and all over the place. That there are these demonic and evil forces that are looking to enslave, kill, and oppress. That's the biblical perspective. It provides a more interlocking view of reality, more deep and nuanced. It doesn't reduce all of our problems in life to one or two plausible possible issues that can be easily addressed. Right? Because how many times do we hear that or read articles like this? You know, The real cause and the real solution to poverty in America is this. Or here's the solution to gun violence in America is this. Here's the solution to systemic racism is this. You know, it's like always this one solution and it never works. Right? It, it seems like our problems are more nuanced, are more deep, are more complex than one thing. This biblical worldview provides a much more broad understanding of the world's problems. And it provides then this picture of this reality of evil in the world that we all feel. This pressing and attacking that happens throughout all of the world, and especially in our own lives, where the picture that we have from, not just from the Gospels here, but also Paul in Ephesians and Timothy and throughout his writing as well, but of this, like, there are evil spirits that are looking for ways to influence and corrupt us. There are these spirits that are looking for ways to have their way with us and around the world, right? Paul uses this analogy of, like, an armor is needed, right? Like, as the the church stands as the body, because it's just this probing, looking for weaknesses, looking for problems, the way in which the, the, the words that, that Mark uses to talk about this man, and this is used throughout the gospel, they don't doesn't use demon possessed, but rather they use the word, it's called demonized, like this man was demonized. I think that's a helpful kind of distinction to a certain degree because it fits a bit more kind of Paul's picture he gives, too, of like how you can give the devil a foothold, how you can give evil forces a foothold to have a greater and greater influence in your life. You know, this pattern of a gradual and all-consuming influence of evil where spiritual forces are looking to stir up the problems that are already existing in our lives and that helps to make sense of our own personal struggles it helps to make sense more of societal pro- problems you know when we talk about like how can there be things like systemic injustice and impression good people doing terrible things like how do we get there right it it just doesn't make a lot of sense the the my own behaviors don't make a lot of sense unless i can add on to all of these other things this more spiritual component to things now this is it's right, hard to believe this, right, and for good reasons, right? I mean, this, is, this goes against a lot of what we are raised in. I mean, I think we have a lot of reasons to object to the spiritual or to the, like, the demonic, evil, all of these things. I think though, the first reason why we are quick to dismiss this or not to believe in demons or evil forces or all of these things that are described is, one, is just our modern arrogance. I mean, we're just, as moderns, we're just incredibly arrogant, Every generation is very arrogant compared to the ones before, right? Like, we feel like we have arrived at a greater understanding. We today know far more than they did back then. We are the pinnacle of human everything. This year is it kind of idea. And that's just wrong right? That just doesn't hold weight when you study history and how humanity ebbs and flows when it comes to culture and knowledge and understanding of truth and philosophy and art and beauty. It's not always a clear climbing progression as a people, right? We can't be overly arrogant and confident to know that we have it all right. Another issue within that one, too, is that we also have a very comfortable life as Westerners. We don't often feel as oppressed or attacked. Or we have more ways in which to deflect it or blame other things for what's wrong in our world, or we can just kind of numb ourselves, medicate ourselves, distract ourselves from evil, from these things, and not even look at it or want to see these evil forces that are at work within the world. I think the other reason, probably the strongest reason why we are inclined to reject evil and reject the demonic is that if we're honest with ourselves, if evil is Real. If this is true, if the Bible, what the Bible's arguing for, if there are these spiritual forces that are at work in the world seeking ways to undermine and to kill and oppress and enslave, then there, I mean, what solution is there? I mean, what possible hope is there? I mean, it's, it's, that is a frightening reality to believe and one in which it feels very hopeless to believe then as well because if I have a more naturalistic worldview, it's like, great. If, if the problem of the world is just material, then let's just get those solutions out there. If the problem is everybody needs more food, then let's just give everybody food. If, if the problem is psychological, well, then let's just get everybody into this and get this going. Like, the solutions become simple. With a simple understanding or a simple understanding of evil, then the solutions are simple, and they feel accomplishable. Like, we could do this. I could do this. When The problems of the world feel overwhelming and too hard to understand and comprehend. I mean, then how can I possibly attack these or overcome these problems? Which really brings us back then to this man and to the story of him. Because, I mean, what an incredibly complex and difficult story this is when we look at his life and and Mark really leaves a lot of ambiguity in the story of what led to this place, but right, it's like, who is he? What kind of who was he before he ends up living amongst the tombs, cutting himself at night, crying out? You know, Luke uses that little he inserts this anymore in there, right? Like they could no longer they can bind him no more, not anymore. Their efforts didn't work anymore, which kind of implies then that they used to, like that this was a gradual thing. Like they tried to restrain him. They, they tried to help him, the people. of And where did he come from? Did he have a family? What? But, but he has come to the place where he has been completely abandoned and rejected and driven out. And he is now on his own. And the moment he sees Jesus... Right? What an amazing moment. The moment he sees him off the boat, he runs to him. He runs and he falls to his knees in front of Jesus. And Jesus says to him, "Right," says to the demon, come out. Which again is an unprecedented moment in history, especially when it comes to exorcisms. I don't claim to be an exorcist expert on exorcisms. Probably you're not either. But all ancient exorcisms and modern exorcisms, everybody has to call upon the name of some higher power to do it, right? I call you out in the name of whatever God you want to pick. Or in the Bible, even when there's exorcisms that happen, call on the name of the Lord. Or this happens in the book of Acts right, there's those exorcists who learn about Jesus, and they start calling out demons in Jesus's name, and the demons come out, and they turn on these guys, right? You, know, you have to call upon the name of someone who has authority to do, be able to do it. Jesus just says, come out. He doesn't call on anyone's name. He just speaks over this man, and the demons come out. And they even try to do that trick to him, Right, when they start talking to him, right in the name of the Lord, most, right, like they call on him to try to get him to do their will or to not drive him and not torment them, you know. but it's just not, not going to work. Jesus has this ultimate power and authority. Mark goes to great lengths to show it. He wants to show it with the storm before in Mark 4. Jesus has ultimate authority and power over the weather, over all forces of nature, right? He, has, he is the sole supreme authority over those things. Here, over the demons, he has sole authority over evil forces and the demonic. And then in chapter 5, later in 5, he has complete authority and power over death with Jairus' daughter. He's the highest power. There's none he needs to call on. And then, and then the, the, Mark goes to great lengths too to show us, or, or to illustrate this power by that he's able. It's not just a demon. You find out that the demon is a legion of demons. And so, you know, what's your name, right? So that we're, we're a legion. Again, emphasizing this comparison of Jesus's power and authority. It's He is not even breaking a sweat. Over thousands of demons. I mean, a legion in the Roman world, right? I mean, the legion is the most skilled, trained, big fighting units, I mean, it's five to 6,000, who knows, huge, huge legion of soldiers, for Jesus, he doesn't even have to break a sweat over it, come out, and they have to come out. And then Jesus surprises everybody in the story with the pigs, right? The pigs are surprising. It's a surprise to everybody. It's a surprise to the demons, and at least how it worked out for them, They didn't anticipate they are going to be going off a cliff, you know, clearly. Otherwise, they wouldn't have asked to be sent into those pigs. You know, their hope was probably that they'd just be able to exist in these pigs and then find some other avenue in which they could wreak their havoc. It's a surprise to them. It would certainly be a surprise to the disciples, and it was definitely a surprise to the farmers who are standing there, that all of a sudden, these... Two thousand pigs get possessed by demons and then go rushing off a cliff and die. I mean, Jesus is saying to these to these demons, right? There will be no human hosts for you. And for the original reader and those who are watching there in the story, what they see for us as moderns is kind of like, oh, these poor pigs. Like, why would Jesus torment? Her? Oh, I mean, again, it's our modern Western comfort, right? <laughs> for them, they say that is. A lifetime's fortune. Like, that is generational wealth that just went over the cliff. Like, 2,000 pigs? Like, do you know how much money that is? And not just money, but potential money, right? Like, like, that was it. That was everything our family has worked for forever to build this farm. And it just went over the edge. What are you doing, Jesus? Like, why? Why would you do this? And it's a surprise. Jesus defeats evil, but you just don't know how it's going to go after that. What's he going to do as he defeats evil? He's speaking really to everybody in this story as he does this, as the pigs go flying, right? He's saying, all of your wealth is nothing compared to this man's deliverance. Deliverance, Jesus' deliverance and healing is never predictable and it's never free. There's a cost that's going to be paid for this man's soul. And you have to wonder then, and that's where Mark takes us next, I mean, what are, how are people going to respond to this act, to what Jesus has just done, to the healing of the man and also to seeing the death of the pigs? And the response is really fascinating, right? You have the man and the crowd, and their two responses to Jesus are very, very drastically different. Both are begging him, right? Well, the demons start out begging first, and now the man begs and the crowd begs. Everyone's begging from Jesus. One is begging to stay with Jesus, and the other, the crowd, is begging Jesus to leave. It's not just, I mean, it's, it's amazing. The Savior of the world, the one with the authority to save, comes into your city, into your land, and heals, miraculously heals. And please leave. We don't want you here because of the pigs, because of what comes along with him. Like, we're cool with you, Jesus, but we don't like what comes along with you. The man just wanted Jesus. He'd been healed. He's not looking for healing. He was healed. He saw the cost of his deliverance, and he just wants to be with Jesus. The crowd, right, and the gospel authors speak of crowds often, never well, (laughs) but the crowd always just wants things from Jesus. They want the healings, they want the food, they want the protection, they want the deliverance until it gets to a certain cost and then they want out. This is too far. Like, I'm cool with you until this is now possibly on the line. Jesus delivers, but he always delivers on his terms and in his ways. He's the ultimate authority over everything, and there is always going to be a cost. True freedom always comes with a cost. So as us, as readers now, or just as readers then too, I mean, how do we know if we want that deliverance at any cost? Or if we want Jesus at all? Because if we're honest with ourselves, I mean, we're all the crowd, which is why Mark goes to great lengths to show this, because all of us want to keep Jesus at arm's length. We know if we let him have all of us, we know that he'll end up taking all of us. But, you know, you just don't want to even go in. It, this is a bad analogy. It's like me and the dentist. My f- wife can attest to this. I, don't, I, I hate going to the dentist because they're going to find stuff wrong. So I just should never go. It's perfect logic. <laughs> but it's like because I know if I show up, if I get in there, they're going to find more, and they're going to want to do more. And I don't want that. <laughs> I just want you to take care of this one problem. I mean, and how much are we the same with Jesus? I just want you to do this. I'm good now. I don't want you to do any more. We keep him at arm's length. At times, we vacillate back and forth. At times, we're like the man where we come to him and we cry out and we ask for him. And then at other times, we're like, thanks, Jesus. I got it from here. We don't really want to change. Because that's what the crowd didn't want. They wanted Jesus, they just didn't want to change. Because if I let him stay with me, he's going to start changing things. There are certain behaviors I have, feelings, patterns, habits, routines, relationships, that I don't want to let Jesus actually have authority over. I like to let Jesus have authority over my eternal salvation, but I don't want him to have authority over everything in my life because he's going to make me change stuff. And I don't want to change these things. Recognizing Jesus isn't enough. Right? All the characters recognize Jesus, even the demons. That's not enough to just be able to recognize him. Right recognition of Jesus doesn't lead to real change There's a need for surrendering ourselves to Jesus. So how do we get to a place where we're actually ready to accept Jesus on his terms and not on our terms? Right? How do we get to that place? Well, I think when we see the true cost of our deliverance from evil, we begin to have our hearts softened and opened to Jesus. When I see the cost of my salvation, right, like at the end of Mark, Jesus is going to be in this man's place. He's the one who's going to be naked and bleeding and driven to the tomb. Right, like he's the one who's going to endure the shame and the ridicule and the isolation for him. When we see him taking our place, everything starts to fall into place. We stop worrying about what it's going to cost me when I start to see what it cost him. That cost now for me seems pretty little in comparison to the cost that Jesus did for my freedom, for my deliverance. True change begins with seeing the cost of our salvation. And we start to be open to really changing as well when we start to see what Jesus actually did to overcome our evil in the world. When I start to actually see how he overcame evil with good, how he died and he raised from the dead, conquering sin and evil once and for all and showing us this new future self that awaits all of us. New lives, perfect lives, No more tears, no more sadness, no more grief, which gives us hope and confidence now. It actually helps me to believe that there really is a future that awaits me, that it's going to be good, that change is possible now and in the future. He's secured it. It's not just a possible change, right? Like, I hope I can change. It's secure, That beautiful version of myself has been made secure because of what Jesus did and in his resurrection. But Christ is not a dictator, right? He doesn't force us to respond to him the way he wants us to. He doesn't force us to love him. He doesn't force us to say, Yeah, we want to go with you, Jesus. Rather, he loves us. He lays himself down for us so that we can respond to him. He doesn't force the change on us. He lets us let him change us. So the Gospels are really inviting us to respond to his love. So let's respond to this love of Jesus and experience the work of deliverance together. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. Lord, we thank you that you freely, not even just freely, Lord, but you willingly, and it has always been your plan and your purposes, Lord, to send your son to die for us. Lord, who are we that you would love us that much, that you would come for us, that you would suffer and die in our place? that you would defeat sin and evil and these spiritual forces that are at work in this world so that we don't have to be in fear any longer, that we can have hope, that we can have confidence, and that we can trust you and let you change us and let you do the work through your spirit that you've always been wanting to do. Lord, we confess to you how stubborn we are as a people and how often We try to hold you at arm's length, even though that is fruitless and pointless. Lord, thank you for being our loving, gracious Father who is patient with us. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us your Spirit, that you are continuing to lead us and convict us. Lord, just strengthen us as a people to really believe in you, to trust you, and to let you have your way. Lord, help us. To surrender to your will. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.